Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, James 3. And these fellows have some Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle. If you need one, get their attention. And they'll get a Bible to you that is marked at the passage we'll be considering in James chapter 3. And today in James 3, we continue a message that I began last week. Didn't quite finish, so I'll finish what I meant to say last week, and then we have a few additional verses in the passage that we will consider as well. So I invite you to take a look at the outline that we've provided for you. It's inserted in your program. And you see at the top that the message last week and now continued this week is called relational wisdom. And the reason for that is that the theme verses for the five chapters of James are found in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And in verse 26, James says of chapter 1 that if anyone considers himself to be religious, one of the things he must do to demonstrate the reality of that claim is to keep a tight rein on his tongue. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that entire discussion is about the power of the tongue for good or for ill. And so chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and now the verses we're going to consider at the end of chapter 3 and into the beginning of chapter 4 are about how we talk. And not just about how we talk, but the source of our words as well. It, of course, requires other people for us to be engaged in speech. We speak to be heard by others with whom we're in relationship. And according to verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 3, those relationships will demonstrate wisdom of one sort or another. Those verses say it will be either worldly wisdom or godly wisdom either wisdom from below or wisdom from above. And so it's about relationships, and thus the title, Relational Wisdom. And we saw last week that wisdom is knowledge put into practice. It is not just the accumulation of facts and information, but it is taking what we know and then using it for its intended purpose. What I know and believe about myself and about others and about God will be put into practice in my relationships. If what I believe about myself and about others and about God is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, James says in verse 15 of chapter 3, if it is of that sort, it will be shown in the character of those relationships. Verse 16 says, our lives and the relationships that comprise our lives will then be characterized by disorder and every evil practice. That false belief about myself and others in God is motivated by envy and self-ambition, says verse 14 of chapter 3 and verse 16 as well. And verse 14 says the source of this false wisdom that reveals itself in our relationships is ultimately our hearts. And that's why the take-home truth in your outline, if you see down at the bottom, we saw that last week, is that our hearts determine the way we relate. 
And the points in that outline that are filled in are so because we covered them in the first part of the message last week. If you were not here last week, all of our messages are recorded online, as it says at the bottom of that sheet. And I encourage you to take a listen. We saw that we must think of ourselves with integrity. We must think of others with purity. How we think, point three, determines how we relate And the two kinds of wisdom that James gives are going to result in two very different kinds of a relational orbit for us. Worldly wisdom breeds broken relationships. And we left off last week seeing that godly wisdom breeds beautiful relationships. And so I'd like to pick up there. That verses 17 and 18 and then the first three verses of chapter 3 tell us about the character of our relationships. And verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 tell us that godly wisdom breeds beautiful relationships. And so I ask you, how are you relating? Are your relationships broken or beautiful? And the difference will be determined by whether you see yourself as central to the relationship as whether or not that relationship exists for your good or whether you see it as primarily for the benefit of others and what's good for them. If you're motivated by envy and selfish ambition, you can be sure those relationships will be broken. If you're motivated by ambition for the other party, you can be sure those relationships will be beautiful as much as it depends on you. And so to just go in the reverse order then, just think of your relationships. Are they beautiful or are they broken? And if they are indeed broken, we need to ask ourselves about our hearts and for whose benefit we are engaged in this particular relationship. It all depends on how you see yourself and how you see others and ultimately how you see God in that relationship. I noted last week that as we approach others in relationship, we can do one of three things. We can compare, we can contrast, or we can consider. The first two of those, comparing ourselves and how the other party does things better than we do, and thus the envy that James speaks of kicks in, or contrasting how it is that we do things better than the other party, and thus the selfish ambition that James warns against, those two are, are egocentric. They're, they're focused on, on me and not the other party. And the truth is, friends, we can be, as the saying goes, legends in our own minds. We can think so highly of ourselves. And then coupled with our susceptibility to deception, each of us can have an inflated view of ourselves as compared and contrasted to others. And so we compare how they're better than we. And we contrast how we're better than them. And you'll do those two things if you see the relationship as somehow in competition to see who can get the most out of the relationship. And of course, if it's selfishly motivated, then the objective is for me to get the most and what I want out of it. But the third option is to consider. And to consider how I can serve God 
by serving the other person in this relationship. I can seek to use others for my benefit, or I can seek to be used by God for their benefit and for His glory. And the difference between those two approaches, as we saw last week in verses 13 through 16, and now what we're going to see in verses 17 and 18, the difference between the worldly wisdom that produces broken relationships and the godly wisdom that produces beautiful relationships, that difference is seen in the first word in verse 17. Notice what verse 17 says. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, this. It is pure. You see, it is a relationship in which there is no ulterior motive for self-promotion. The wisdom that comes from above and then is expressed in our relationships with others is, first of all, not tainted by ulterior motive for self-promotion. It is truly altruistic. Doing what we do, saying what we say, for the benefit of the other party. And that's diametrically opposed to what we see in verses 14 and 16, characteristic of worldly wisdom, the envy and the, the, or jealousy, same word. Beautiful relationships are fostered when both parties seek the good of the other rather than themselves. Now, if that's going to happen in our relationships, we are going to have to learn to need other people less and love other people more. Need them less, love them more. I'm good. Now, what does that mean? In our relationships, we come to them often without self a self-conscious approach that says, I need certain things from you in this relationship. And whether or not this relationship is valuable, whether or not ultimately you're valuable, will depend on whether or not I have those perceived needs fulfilled by you. And I am saying that we need to need people less and love them more. Approach the relationship not in terms of how this person can fulfill my needs, but how I can be used of God to help them. I must need them less for my security and for my identity and my comfort and my self-esteem. And I must love them more, see how it is that I can be used for what they truly need. You can only do this when the God we believe in the God we truly believe in is big enough to supply all those other things. You see, the reason, friends, that we look to other people in selfish ways to fulfill our needs is because ultimately we do not believe God is big enough to supply those needs. And so we come to the relationship needy rather than loving. So, the question for you and for me is, how do I see myself? How do I view others with whom I'm in relationship? And ultimately, how do I view the God of this relationship? Is it me, myself, as the center, and others as tools for my ambitions, and God as passive, just looking on? Or is it myself as servant, 
and others as opportunities to join not a passive God who's just looking on, but our active God in what He is doing in their lives and in turn in our lives as we relate as He requires. The motivation for relationships that express godly wisdom is pure, untainted by ulterior motive, untainted by selfish motive, and thereby it gives rise to everything else that follows now in verse 17. And that's why verse 17 says, wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all. An absolute requirement that if these are going to be the kinds of relationships we have, that they be untainted by selfish motivation. First of all, and then, here's what comes out of that. Verse 17. Peace-loving. And what I'm going to do over the next few minutes is bounce through these character qualities given in verse 17 of relationships demonstrated by wisdom that comes from above. It's untainted by ulterior motives, selfish motivation, and it is characterized by one who is peace-loving, that is, one who wants to see reconciliation, one who desires deeply to see the relationship mended when broken, as much as it's possible on your end. We all understand, and in fact, the Bible acknowledges Romans chapter 12. Live at peace with all men as much as it depends on you, says Romans 12. It may be that the other party refuses, but if your motivation in this relationship is untainted by selfish motivation, it will result in you being a peace-loving, peace-desiring individual, wanting reconciliation, seeking it as much as you are able. And most often, that will actually be accomplished especially if we are dealing with brothers and sisters. So it's first of all pure. And that results then in it being peace-loving, peace-seeking. But James goes on to say in verse 17 that it's considerate. Now that word that's translated considerate in that verse is translated elsewhere in your New Testament as gentleness. I have on the screen Philippians Chapter 4 and verse 5, let your gentleness, your consideration, be evident to everyone, to all. And so considerate, gentle, same Greek word translates both of these. What does it mean? It means this, someone who is characterized by a sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. It's someone with whom you can disagree and they still express a sweet reasonableness in their interactions with you. I just had the opportunity to participate in the celebration of a birthday for a dear brother in our church that I won't embarrass by naming him. But when my wife and I composed the card for him, we said, you know, there are many words that could describe you, dear brother. And we listed words like, dependable and trustworthy and faithful. But then we said, you know, the one that comes to mind is gentle, which means sweet reasonableness. Isn't that a beautiful thing to be known that way? 
And I'm thankful to have people in my life who demonstrate that in their interactions with me and with others, even when they disagree about things. And this is not, this is not a weakness. It is moderation without compromise. It's gentleness without weakness. There's a movie going around that I intend to see about President Lincoln sometime soon. Some of you may have seen it. But it was said of Lincoln by his biographer Carl Sandburg that he was a man of, quote, velvet steel. It's not somebody who's weak, but somebody who approaches people and situations with a, a tenderness, a consideration, a gentleness. I get the impression that Barnabas in your New Testament was a guy like that. Now, why? Do you all know that we, we call him Barnabas, but we forget that Barnabas was actually not his real name? Barnabas was his, his nickname. Here's what the Bible says about him. His name was actually Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. And this Barnabas sold a field in the years of the early church that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now notice, the other apostles label him son of encouragement, and it sticks. And I can't imagine that the other apostles were particularly easy guys to get along with. And yet somehow Barnabas managed to do that and to, and to win their, their favor with this nickname. And yet he was not a wallflower. Undoubtedly, in fact, we know from Holy Scripture that he had a, a major dispute with the great Apostle Paul. This is what the Bible tells us. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and he sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. They had a dispute about whether or not John Mark, who had had a, thankfully, Scripture tells us later, a temporary lapse in his commitment, they had a dispute about whether or not he should go on their missionary journeys. And Barnabas, with this sort of velvet steel heart of his, says, I'll take him under my wing. And Paul said, I got no more time for him. And they parted ways. You see, the heart of this man, Barnabas, when... The Bible tells us, beginning in Acts chapter 13, that he was leading church in a city called Antioch, and the church there was, was growing rapidly. And then the Bible says, he sent for Saul, Saul of Tarsus, later Paul. And he sent for him because he had the humility to recognize, I need somebody to help me, somebody with more abilities than me. That person turned out to be Paul. And at the very beginning, it was Barnabas and Paul, and it quickly became, as you read in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas. And he was willing to play that secondary role because he was not motivated by selfish ambition. And he did not care who gets the credit as long as God's work gets done for God's glory. I'm going to move on. You'll be glad to know. But even in God's work, there can be territorialism, turf war. This is my ministry. You don't come in here and tell me how to do my ministry. Friends, this is not anybody's ministry but the Lord Jesus. 
It's not my ministry. It's not my church. And whatever area God has assigned to you does not ultimately belong to you. It's not your territory. And so when someone comes into and just name the ministry, the music ministry, the nursery ministry, the pastoral ministry, someone comes and they are ready to shoulder the load and they can take what is being done and take it the next step, we should be like Barnabas and say, Lord, it's your work and your glory, not my selfish ambition. I want you to note what else this verse in Philippians that says, let your gentleness, your consideration be evident to all. The next phrase says this, the Lord is near. As you read Philippians 4, you know, it just looks like it's disjointed. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything, it goes on to say. That's, friends, all connected. Because Paul, who wrote that, is reminding us, in your relationships, in which this gentleness is to be evident, remember this, the Lord is there. There are always at least three persons in every relationship, and the most important is always God. Remember, the Lord is seeing. And the Lord cares how you interact with others. Now, the assumption of this entire passage in James 3 is that of personal, radical transformation of the individual, right? Because people don't do what I'm talking about. People don't do what James is saying, naturally. This requires a supernatural work of God in the heart of the individual, placing God's interests first and foremost, and then in turn the interests of others before his or her self. The entire passage assumes transformation. We're going to move on with what James says about the characteristics of godly wisdom. But just ask yourself, am I a transformed person from the inside out as evidenced by my interest in the glory of God being achieved in the relationships he is giving me as I invest myself in the lives of others? Verse 17 says, this wisdom's first of all pure, as a result, peace-loving and considerate, and then submissive. That word submissive literally means to place oneself under. Very often, it's used in Scripture to submit to an authority. Children, obey your parents, or wives, submit to your husbands, or citizens, submit to the government, or submit to your leaders in the church, Hebrews 13 says. Very often, it's an authority subject relationship, but not always. It's not always authority. Sometimes it's placing yourself under the needs or the well-being of another. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, submit yourselves, plural, to one another out of reverence for Christ. It goes on then to give some examples of submission in particular kinds of relationships, but we are each to place ourselves under, even if we are peers, we're not in an authority-subject relationship, to place ourselves under the needs and the well-being of the other party. And so this one who is submissive, this peace-loving person, this considerate person, is one who's willing to hear all sides of an issue and will yield to persuasion. In fact, that's another translation of this word, yielding to another. 
Verse 17 says, Godly wisdom in relationships is characterized as well by being full of mercy. What that means is being controlled by mercy. To be full of, often in Scripture, means to be controlled. We see that when Ephesians 5 and verse 19 says to be filled with, be full of the Spirit. What's that mean? It means to be controlled by the Spirit, particularly by the Spirit's Word. And we see that in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. And then verse 17 says it's characterized by good fruit. What that means is this. The relationships of this person who demonstrates godly wisdom will be relationships that are productive. They bear fruit. But not just fruit, positive fruit, good fruit. And so ask yourself, are my relationships in the main? All of us may have people in our lives who refuse to cooperate. I get that. The Bible gets that. But in the main, are your relationships characterized by being productive, moving you and the other party toward Christ-likeness and toward furthering God's glory. Positive fruit, not just talk. And then two others in verse 17, impartial. That is, the individual can decide an issue about which there may be disagreement in a relationship, and they can do that based on truth, based on facts, not based on personality. Why? Because it's not selfish ambition. It's not about me. Now I can look squarely at the facts and then make an impartial decision about what is, what is best. I don't have to get my way. I don't have to worry about if we go this route, that's going to be so-and-so getting his way yet again because I'm not keeping score. And then lastly, sincere. And the word that's translated sincere at the end of verse 17 is a Greek word. You may recognize the English word we get from it, Hippocrates. Sincere, that is, this is the negative form of Hippocrates, not hypocritical. And in New Testament times, a, a hypocrite was a word for an actor in the, in the theater. It was one who, who wore a mask. And so when displaying God's wisdom in our relationships, there is openness and there is honesty, is what James is telling us. And so in contrast to verse 16, where the Bible says, when earthly, ungodly wisdom, worldly wisdom reigns, there is disorder. In contrast to that, this person's interactions, the one who demonstrates godly wisdom with others, produces a harvest of of peace. Verse 18. This applies, friends, to every sphere of relationships we have. At work, at home, and in the church. Now this passage assumes, as I said earlier, a transformed heart. But it also assumes, does it not, a potential relational struggle. Otherwise, James doesn't have to write this stuff. Correct? I mean, James, James assumes that we need to be reminded of all of this stuff and commanded about this because living in a fallen world, despite the fact that we come to Christ and we have His Spirit and we are, have been transformed and are in the process of being transformed, despite all of that, we're going to be in relationships where we struggle and where the other party or parties struggle as well. It's precisely because there's the very real danger 
of broken relationships that won't be obvious in you or the other party, that we need to give heed to what James and now I am saying. The answer is that our hearts that are transformed and are being transformed continue to be cultivated in the soil of our relationships. The answer is ultimately internal, not external. You see, you may be thinking about your relationships and going, but if he or she, or if my boss would, or if they would stop, And if you're thinking that way, you are thinking opposite what James is saying. The answer is not external to you. The answer is internal to you. So you may be thinking, if that person would get out of my life, or if I get out of that person's life, then things will be okay. But hear this, friends. A change of address does not mean a change of heart. And the heart is the issue. Removing yourself from difficult relationships is not the ultimate answer. I saw this past week on the internet a statement that said, I found the key to happiness. Stay away from idiots. They actually used more colorful language than that. I found the key to happiness. Stay away from people who I don't want to be around. Well, good luck with that. Because the truth is, the world is filled with people that are not pleasant to be around. And guess what? Sometimes that includes you and me. Because the world is filled with sinful people. That approach that says, I found the key to happiness, stay away from from idiots, assumes the problems outside of me. James says, "Uh uh-uh, look at chapter 4 and verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In verse 1 of chapter 4, it's phrased as a question, but it assumes an affirmative answer. Yes. What causes the fights and quarrels is the desires that war, that battle within me. And that's why I say in the fourth point in your outline, what we want determines what we value. What we want, what we desire, determines what we value, and that in turn will affect the quality of our relationships. What I want from people, what I desire, is going to determine whether I value people or whether I use them. What I want from people is going to determine whether I value or use them. If I want the glory of God and His character to be displayed and His fame widened, then I want to be an instrument in the lives of others to see them reflect God's image back to Him. But if I'm characterized by selfish ambition and jealousy, envy, if I want my glory and my agenda to be implemented then I will value what people do or fail to do for me rather than valuing them in their own right. You see, friends, the problem does not require a change of people, a change of venue, a change in your circle. 
It requires a change of heart so that our wants, our desires are changed and then our values follow. When we identify a person or persons as the cause of our sinful interactions, we not only contradict what God directly says in James chapter 4 and verse 1, we've also committed the logical fallacy called the post-hoke, ergo-proctor-hoke fallacy. You say, what is that? That's Latin. And I don't really know what it means, but I think it's a really cool phrase. Don't you guys? Now, you already sang some Latin earlier, right? Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory, Latin, glory to God in the highest. And what is this, this fallacy that is post-hoc, ergo proctor hoc? Here's what it means. And by the way, if I were you, I would just use that at my next family outing. The holidays are coming up. If you're arguing with a family member about politics, about sports, about religion, it doesn't matter. Just say to them in the middle of the conversation, I think you have committed the post-hoke, ergo-proctor-hoke fallacy. That will end the discussion, probably end your dinner and holiday as well. But here's what it means. After this, therefore because of this. After this, therefore because of this. And here's the idea. We see the manifestations of our anger in our relationships, for instance. And those expressions of anger come after something the other person said or did or failed to do or say. And we assume, since we got angry after that, that we got angry because of that. And James says that's not the deal. God says the cause is actually our hearts. And the action or inaction of others is only, now hear this, the occasion to reveal what's there. It's not the cause, it's the occasion. When verse 1 says, then, don't they, assuming an affirmative answer, yes, they come from your desires. That word desires. Notice does not say evil desires. The desires may be for something good, they may be for something evil, but often it's for something actually in itself that's good. I desire something good and I desire for you to help me achieve that good for me, like peace and quiet in the house. Children, I desire peace and quiet when I come home from work. Is peace and quiet a good desire, perfectly good, valid desire? But if my children fail to cooperate in my desire, and in their failure to cooperate, I respond in sinful anger, guess what has happened? That otherwise good desire for a good thing has morphed into an idolatrous desire. Getting that thing has become more important to me than pleasing God in that relationship. That's why verse 2 says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet. That word covet is the same word that's translated envy back in verse 14 and back in verse 16. You kill and you envy. You kill and you intensely desire what you want. It may be illicit. It may be perfectly fine, but you want it so much you're willing to sin in its absence. When it says you, you kill and you intensely envy or covet, 
doesn't mean you necessarily literally murder somebody, but hear this, all literal murder starts in the heart. Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have committed murder already, didn't he? We sometimes speak of premeditated murder in our legal system. And it's usually thought of as premeditated if thought was given to it in the moments immediately preceding the act. If there was no planning just prior, then no premeditation. Now think about this. But what about all of the meditation for months and years that has registered every slight, every crossword, every snub at school or at church or at work? That's meditation. That's thinking about it, meditating on it and harboring it. And it builds until the final snub. And there may not have been thought about it for a week or a month prior, but it's there and ready to explode, just awaiting the match that will ignite it. And I call that premeditation. And the fact is people meditate. They think about themselves as it relates to others all the time. And I would not say then that they just snapped. You hear that, right? They just snapped. But rather, something happened to trigger what's been building up for years. That's what James is telling us. It's all inside. It's a battle inside. And then it erupts. Something happens to reveal what's already there. The cause is not what happened. That's the occasion. The cause is what's in our hearts. And so think about this. If you've got these two kinds of wisdom, and one is characterized by disorder and evil of every kind, and another is characterized by a harvest of righteousness, verse 18, then think about the people who don't like you. What are your relationships like? Now, as you think about the people that don't like you, undoubtedly every person here can't think of anybody. Surely that's a very short list. <laughs> I mean, what's not to like about us? All right, well, let's reverse it then. Let's make it easier. Think about the people you don't like. Because we all know there's a long list of them. Because there's a long list of idiots that are the key to happiness if you stay away from them, so says the world. So think about the people you don't like in some way. All of those people, in one way or another, are not providing to you what you want. Every last one of them. All of the people that you, in your mind right now, say, I don't like. Every last one of them is failing in one way or another to provide something you desire, something you want. And you will be aided in our culture by modern psychology to morph wants into needs. And so you can say, it's not just I want this, I need this, and therefore they should supply it, but it won't change God's word at all. Philippians 2.14 says this. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Period. How many of you do everything without complaining? How many of you do that at work, at home, at church? How can someone obey what God has said? What's behind a command like do everything without complaining or arguing? 
What must one believe in order to obey that? Here's what you must believe. Remember I said all of this is going to be determined by ultimately what you believe about yourself and others and about God? If you're going to be able to obey God's command to do everything without complaining or arguing, you're going to have to believe in a good God who is at work doing a good thing in your life, whatever the circumstances, including all of your relationships. Do I believe this good God is at work? That God has something good in this? This person needs me to love them more than for me to love being right. And so let me recommend, friends, that each of us make a rule and adhere to it. In our relationships, with those God has brought into our sphere, our circle of influence, make this rule. I will only mention the name of another to another for the good of that other party. I will only ever mention the name of another person to a third party when it is for their good. I will not, in any venue, and I'm saying we commit to not in any venue, whether at home, in the car, at church, at work, in the nursery, in the hallway, wherever it is, I will not mention anyone's name unless it is for their benefit. Now, if we do that, we are saying, aren't we, by our, by our words and our, and our selective choice of words, that we believe that God has put us in this relationship in order to bring glory to himself in building up this other party, even if they are difficult. Let me give you another rule. The first one is this. I will not mention the name of another to another except it be for their good. Except as we discuss how we can help this person. And here's another one. If I criticize, it will always be followed by a suggestion. If I criticize what someone's doing, if I go to them and I'm going to the source, which is what we should do, and I say, you're not doing this right, but if I criticize, I will always attempt to give a suggestion, not just leave the negative hanging out there. And I will accompany my criticism with praise. I thank God you're in my life. I thank God for what you're attempting to do. And I'm making this suggestion to improve what we're seeking to do together to bring glory to God. Now, the last part of verse 2 and the entirety of verse 3 in chapter 4 say this. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's showing that in all of this, our view of God is involved. It's not only, as I've said, how we see ourselves and others, but how we see God. I don't trust God to provide good for me, so I'll take matters into my own hands, and therefore I don't ask God. God work in this relationship. And I'm willing to sin in order to take matters into my own hands. And if I do ask God, verse 3, it's not for His purposes. 
It's not as we saw earlier this year in the series we did on prayer in our Discovering God Hour where we mentioned the phrase praying backwards. Anybody remember that? Starting your prayers in Jesus' name, at least theoretically, if not mechanically. Starting your prayers by saying, Lord, I am asking this thing, I am praying this thing in the name of Jesus. That is, I am asking this in the context of who Jesus is and what his purposes are in his world and for me and for others. And as a result of that, I am asking for these things. When we ask, we ask in light of God's purposes. Now, we're going to end. But this, I said, assumes a transformed heart. Everything that James has said, everything that I've outlined here, only happens with those who have had hearts that are changed and are being changed. And the question for you is, is that the kind of desire that you manifest in your relationships? Do you show in your relationships the way you talk to and about other people? Selfish ambition and envy? Or is it pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive, sincere? If not, it may be because the heart has never been changed. But that can change now. As we bow in just a moment, you can say to God, I have come to realize my sin in a way that I had not seen. And you can be rescued from yourself. You can be saved, delivered from that selfishness. If you're somebody who has been saved, but you, like me, struggle in our relationships because I still have the vestiges of indwelling sin, but I've seen the fruit of God in my life at times and in other and hopefully many relationships, but I know I still struggle. We can go to our God and we confess that and he is faithful and just, the Bible says, to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this convicting look into the pages of your word, convicting for me, convicting for us as your people. Lord, those of us who you have graciously called out of the world and to yourself and have given your Holy Spirit, your word resonates within us, even when it hurts. I pray, Lord God, that my brothers and sisters here have been convicted about the use of their words in their relationships and whether or not they are seeking to serve others or use them. I pray that that sin has been revealed in the hearts of many and it is being confessed and forsaken. And I pray for any who came into this room and have heard about a different way to live and a different way to view people. And perhaps that's the, the first time that they have heard other than a worldly, a cultural approach to relationships. And your spirit is convicting them. I pray that they are being transformed at this moment from the inside out and that you'll continue their tr your transformative work in them in the years to come and as we enter in, into eternity, making us more like the Lord Jesus and thus bringing glory to yourself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.